Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Durand, alongside co-host Henry Hoffman. And we are excited today to have Jessica Miller, who's kind of uh, an OT super person. And she's mentoring other OTs, which we're going to drill into a while. You're the first person we've talked to that does this. So welcome, Jessica. Hey, Jessica. Thank you so much, Henry and Pete. It's awesome to be here. I've been enjoying your podcast. Yeah, I'm very glad to have you here. And you are in Indianapolis, correct? That's right. Yes. Are you a Colts fan? I might get in trouble if I give you the real answer to that. So who's your team? Okay, here's the funny thing about me. I really enjoy watching sport a lot, but I'm not a big team person. Okay, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's good. At least you're not a Bears fan. Oh, used to be. Oh, well, see, you've been converted. You're a smart see? person. <laughs> There's hope, right? So Jessica, you're born and raised in Indiana? I am. Born from Valparaiso, Indiana. Moved around a little bit. I didn't think I'd stay here, but I really love it. A lot of my family's here. And let me guess, you went to OT school in Indiana? I did. So I grew up in Valparaiso and I went to OT school in Evansville, which was the Farthest I could get, but still pay in-state tuition. Wonderful. <laughs> Hi, Mom. It's <laughs> a great strategy. University of Southern Indiana, correct, I believe, right? Yes. Excellent. So when we look for people to join the podcast, we're looking for people who are extremely passionate about neuro-OT. And when I first met you, it was evident to the point where you're not only helping people understand that specific aspect of OT, but you're helping them find their voice, grow their skills. There were a couple of things I observed on your website doing a little research that even OTs struggle with the amount of research they could be doing all the time to sift through what's working and what's not working. That's right. Yeah. I think that's part of your purpose, right? Absolutely. It's to bridge that gap. You know, the therapists are out there all day with a full caseload, giving the best treatment. They're giving their heart, their time. They're doing documentation. They're staying after for those phone calls with the physicians and care coordinating because the the mentees are telling me, I'm looking through the research and I'm still just not sure how to apply that or I'm not sure what this part means. It's interesting that ongoing training is so important, but it sounds to me it's tying the research back to practical application, right? And helping find out what's working. So what caused you to discover this was an issue? Was it something you experienced yourself and then decided to to help other people with it? There were a couple a couple things, yes, that that was a challenge for me. And I became aware that therapists are trying really hard. They're digging into the research, but especially new therapists or new grads, they don't have that experience yet. So they don't know what the research looks like in an actual treatment session. And then ongoing therapists, they're still struggling finding the time to really dig and implement that. And there's some shame around that because we know that we should be, and that's going to be the best thing for our patients. And that is something I hope to help bridge that gap and give therapists the research in a way that how can this show up in the intervention session? Literally, what are the steps? Yeah, I love the name you chose for your business, which is Pathways, right? It's kind of has two meanings, right? The, the pathways, the brain runs along, but also giving OTs pathways to bettering their practice and becoming more enriched in the, in the profession they've chosen. And I'm going to kind of flip this over to Henry here for more detailed 
um, question specifically about that type of OTs that you're training. What was the watershed moment where you saw a gap between something you learned at school that wasn't being applied in a clinic? Was there something specific that you said, there's just, this just isn't right? That's a good question. It's actually in cog rehab, I would have to say, the, the moment that I go, oh, and OTs that are really trying to re- address attention, memory, problem solving, executive functioning, and really didn't have that, the evidence-based practice to implement those strategies, were really defaulting more towards what uh, homework type tasks, paper and pencil type tasks. And it was more like school and our patients were feeling like they were back in school and it didn't feel very good. And there's kind of this pass fail or a grade. And I had the opportunity to work with Edmund Haskins. He was our neuropsychologist and he brought in evidence-based practice cog rehab. And I, I consider his, his book, one of the, the Bibles of cog rehab. And he really taught us therapists, OTPT and speech. So we met every week and we went over the strategies like goal plan, do review and using NBAC. And we practiced these together. We practiced them with our patients, came back and we got to chew on it. What worked? How is this not functional? And we did this back and forth, back and forth while he was writing his book. And we moved away from paper and pencil tasks and made cog rehab about grocery shopping and meal prep and how to get to their kids' baseball games, this problem solving through that process. So that was a big turning point for me. Like, what else am I missing if I was missing this before? Oh, it's so well put. That's really well put, Jessica. Thanks for that. Henry, what's your follow-up question there? Yeah, so a few things. I think for the help of the audience, since we do have a ton of patients listening as well as therapists, let's maybe pause and take a few steps back. Obviously, by the way, cog rehab means cognitive rehabilitation, and and that's going to be memory, thinking, uh, problem solving, all those brain cognition uh, strategies that stroke survivors suffer. But let's take a few steps back. You're a practicing occupational therapist for how many years now? 19. 19. And you probably went through the system from uh, inpatient, outpatient, home health, sniff like me, or uh, peds, adults, you did the whole gamut. What'd you do? So I started in post-acute brain injury at this awesome place in Southern Illinois, and it was really functional. Uh, the folks stayed there for several months, and we got to take them into the community. We did group therapy. After that, I came back home to Indiana and did the home health, and I did inpatient rehab and acute rehab. All the while, just had my eyes on outpatient neuro rehab because that's my love. And so I've right? It's just like, that's the one I want. I'm going to get it. <laughs> that's right. And so you got it. I did. So the last maybe dozen years, that's where I have been working until this past year. Awesome. That seems like a similar journey. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, start with the OT school. Now, by the way, the first mentoring uh, experience for me was in college. So obviously the level one, level two field works. Yep. We'll get into it in a minute, but I love this concept and I want to get into it. Uh, new to neuro star mentoring approach. And I love the concept that you have with mentoring OTs. We had an offline discussion uh, last week regarding, man, wouldn't it be great if we had a neuro star, or we call it neuro nerd, in every zip code? Well, this is how we get there, Jessica. We have lots of you around the country training people. So my first experience needing mentorship would have been in school. So I can see the benefit there because you're scared. You're touching patients for the first time. You're interacting with patients' lives, right? And you need help and you need assurance that you're doing things correctly. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you don't get that from your field work coordinator or your, or your supervisor who's super busy. So I can see that first step being there. But then um, what I'm curious to learn more about 
now that you're in that stage. And, and by the way, are you doing that full time now or are you also practicing at the outpatient center as well? I'm 100% in my own business now, which is Pathways. So I'm treating a few patients in a community mobile sense. And so I go to their homes or into their community. And then I'm also doing the other part of continuing education and mentoring. So those are kind of the three legs of Pathways. Okay. And we love, we love the mobile therapy concept. We have interviewed a few therapists doing that. That's only going to grow. So kudos to you for that experience. And then from the mentor side, for the OTs listening, and I'm going to get into specifics in a little bit, but for the OTs listening, you know, break down this new to neuro star mentoring approach that you have so they can understand, I can understand what's happening with the mentoring and how does that work? I'm super excited about this. So one of the gaps I was seeing, or one of the problems I was seeing with traditional continuing education, which I love education, right? So I I used to love going to the weekends and spending six hours on Saturday, kind of being with other neuro nerds and soaking it up. But the problem was when I went back to the clinic, I had all this good stuff and maybe I didn't have a patient that it was appropriate for. So I kind of had to tuck it away, put a tab on the binder and hope I could remember it when the time came. So I'm really taking that approach and I'm applying, applying one of the strategies that we learned to help folks with their, their memory and their attention. And we're applying it to us therapists because we know neuroplasticity is not just a brain injury thing. It's a brain thing. And it's how we learn. So the STAR mentoring method approach is an acronym. And it's a four-step process to help uh, therapists as they're learning a new skill to implement it and then bring it back to chew on. So the S is share about a patient. So we would sit together, whether this is a one-on-one mentoring or one of my group programs. So there's going to be a session where we're just talking about, tell me about your patient. And you're going to say, okay, Joe is a police officer and his goals are to get back to work and back to parenting. And his problems are that he has hemiparesis. So that right arm is weak and he can't lift his kid up. Okay, so there we have a goal and we have a problem. And I'm going to ask them to share, what have you already tried? And they're going to say, I did E-STEM or something like that. Okay, that's the share part. And then the T is talk through the interventions. So we'll talk through how did you set up the E-STEM on their arm and what kind of functional tasks were you doing with it? So was this, did you have the E-STEM on and it was kind of passively moving that hand up and down? Or were you actually reaching for their child's, you know, their blanket or something? Were you giving them something functional to reach towards? And they'll say, yeah, I had them reaching, but their fingers curled up in that spasticity. Okay. Well, then as that E-STEM is firing, pass, help their fingers. And so this is what we're going to do over and over until you get that spasticity to calm down a little bit and then see if they can do it themselves. So we're talking through that very next step in the intervention. That's the T. The A is apply it. Okay, we've talked about it. Go back and do it. Give it a try. They go back to the clinic. They're going to put the E-STEM on and help their fingers and reach towards that blanket. And then they're going to come back and that R is review. How did it go? What went wrong? Are there challenges? Were there successes? And they're going to say, well, it worked for three to five reps. And then that specificity kicked back in. Okay, no problem. Then we're back at the top of that star. Share a problem. You just did. Let's talk through that. Let's try a little weight bearing to help calm that spasticity down. Or this is what you try after those five reps. You take a rest, teach them to calm their nervous system and try again. Okay, I'll try that technique. Got it. Got it. That's, that's awesome. And, you know, when I, when I hear you go through that 
case study of some of the questions that makes me wonder, let's learn about the profile of your clients. Clients meaning, I'm assuming they're mostly OTs? Yes, mostly OTs. Okay. And are they usually mostly adult rehab or pediatric? Mostly adult rehab. That's my experience is probably 95% adult. So it's definitely, I do have some folks in the new to neuro Facebook community who treat pediatrics because some of these skills are definitely applicable. But those who work with me one-on-one or in one of my groups is typically doing adult rehab. My first reaction is the people who sign up with a mentor, kudos to them because they're open to learning. And that's the biggest struggle. They're open to learning. They've recognized that they have a lack of knowledge in a certain area. They're open to learning and they then determine that, you know what, I want to improve my performance. I want to help my patient. And they're taking the first step. So with the profile, the classic profile of these clients that you see, I'm sure your answer is going to be, yes, some are new grads, some are 30 years post-graduation, some are, they get the occasional stroke survivor. Can you give us some trends? Like who are these folks? Who are these OTs? Are they they, uh, new grads mostly? folks that see a stroke survivor every six months. And the reason why I'm saying this is, as I mentioned early on, our job is to have enough Jessicas, enough use, to train enough therapists so we have enough neuro nerds in every zip code. So the next patient who has a stroke in some rural area doesn't have to say, I wish they lived in a coastal town where I can get amazing neuro rehab experience. Because I live in Southern Indiana, Um, I'm going to have to go to a general OT clinic who sees a stroke survivor every six weeks. And that means the chances of my recovery is next to none. And that's what we're trying to avoid. So can you describe who your classic OT is? And and then I'm going to dive a little bit deeper, not to hijack Pete's questions. And then I'll shut up for a little bit. Well, it's not who I thought it was going to be. I really thought it was going to be therapists that have been doing this for a while, six, 10 years, and they really want to dive in deeper. But what I'm learning is this is, and this this says so much about the new grads coming out, is there's kind of two groups. One would be new grads who know they want to go into neuro. So they're like, I love it. I just want more of it. So they're very clear. And the other one I would say are therapists in about nine months of practice, maybe nine months to two years. And this group of therapists would either be one, they're neuro dedicated. So they want to learn. And Henry, I just wanted to comment when you said that when they reach out for mentoring, it's such a brave action. It's really hard to say, I don't know what to do. I need help for anybody. But also I think as therapists, we think we should know what to do with everybody who comes into our clinic's doors. And it's a practice. We're all learning. So just, yes, just, it takes courage. So back to there's two groups of therapists in that nine months to, to two years of experience the ones that are neurodedicated and the other ones that are in acute care. And they say, I do, I get that stroke patient that comes in uh, every couple of weeks. And I kind of, I just don't know what to do. Is it even safe to move their arm? It's subluxed. How do I move it? What do I do with it? And so I'm really seeing the kind of neurodedicated and also those that I, I think it's, I wasn't expecting, but I love, they're like, I don't know how to do this. This maybe isn't my passion, but I need to be able to do this better. And my final thought on that before I flip it over to Pete for more is I can see the frustration on patients' faces weekly when they come in and I'm evaluating them and they have the same story. I wish I knew about this earlier and this technique before. I've never heard of this strategy. 
And I think if I was going to be creating a mentor program, probably similar to what you already have, several things I'd be doing. And I apologize if it's something you don't agree with in advance or anyone in the audience. I would definitely start them off with... Yes, I'm excited to hear. I would definitely start them off with taking them to school on the latest research. And I may even do a little history because sadly, whether you're, for some reason, there's a hot pocket in California for patients who go to a certain, I won't won't say the name of the treatment approach and it's approach. It's not a proven scientific intervention. It's an approach. But sadly, in certain pockets of the country, therapists are taught to not do things that are evidence-based. They do theoretical things that they've learned for over five, six decades. NDT is a great example. NDT, everyone knows. Bobath uh, was the founder. We all grew up learning NDT in the 90s, 80s, 70s. And that was the gold standard. And so when people, when Sabo started in uh, roughly 2002, remember our device is a Sabo Flex is a spring load. That was the very first product. That's causing you to squeeze to pick up an object against springs. Well, one of the gold standards for NDT and some of these offshoots that I won't name is you should never strengthen a spastic muscle. That was five decades in a row. That was the Diablo. If you strengthen a spastic muscle, you should go straight to jail, right? So because if you strengthen that muscle, the the theoretical argument was that's going to increase spasticity. Well, lo and behold, we learned that that's actually not the case. And in fact, strengthening is very important. It's not detrimental. It's actually um, a much needed part of the recovery. And so when people saw that Sableflex back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of haters. And they didn't, they didn't think that that was going to work. But then in the afternoon when the patients came in and they saw them using the Sableflex and they took it off in their hands like butter, nice and smooth, no spasticity, we were able to shape people's uh, behaviors. It was a nice paradigm shift. So uh, fast forward over the years, research has clearly indicated that certain things are proven to be effective and other things are not proven to be as effective and definitely not comparable. And so one of the things we learned back in the day, and patients on, on this uh, or listening to this podcast are certainly going to understand this one. We used to say, hey, uh, uh, besides don't strengthen your spastic muscles, we used to spend, I used to personally spend half of my session weight-bearing, weight-bearing for my patients. They had a ton of tone. I have a 30, 45-minute session. I would do all these crazy weight-bearing strategies and techniques. Well, guess what? I got them loose. No doubt about it. After that session was over, that boy was loose, okay? Mm-hmm. By the way, he then had to walk a quarter mile to his car. So what do you think happened when he got to his car to find his keys? Do you think that tone was nice and loose? Did they just ask you, hey, Henry, can you just come home with me? Right? <laughs> exactly. Keep, right, exactly. we're going to keep this loose all day, yeah. Yeah, so I have 12 sessions that are billed to his insurance for, for the year. And I used to waste, literally waste, half of those sessions weight-bearing that lasted 45 minutes, and then it went back to a spastic mess. Mm-hmm. So that was one example. Now, am, am I saying weight bearing is a bad idea? Absolutely not. I have patients weight bear all the time. It's part of their home program. Mm-hmm. Am I going to use half of my build services to weight bear? I didn't go to school for five years to be the ultimate weight bear. And by the way, you're not going to weight bear yourself into recovery mode. It's going to take much more than weight bearing. So I do use stretching and weight bearing as a precursor to, to try to do task-specific training. Mm-hmm. But people take it to the nth degree thinking I'm going to spend 90% of my time stretching and call that occupational therapy skilled services. So things like that would drive me crazy or doing specific handling techniques. If you're a 72 year old patient and you live with a husband, do you think seeing the patient two times a week and doing special handling skills has any carryover whatsoever? Do you think the husband's going to go home and do those magic handling skills you just did? No. My point is constraint-induced movement therapy answered all my questions. 
we know constraint-induced movement therapy, which for the folks listening, is when you restrain your unaffected side and force you to use your affected side to do uh, intense repetitious task movements, already been proven to be significantly beneficial. When you do CIMT, you look ugly. A lot of people, massive compensation, right? They're doing things like this. They're in synergy and they're grasping. They're doing everything NDT told us not to do. And guess what? They had amazing results, neuroplasticity changes, hand function changes. That was an eye-opener for me, and that was almost 20 years ago. So that changed my attitude. Now, does that mean NDT is bad? Of course not. What it means is when a patient comes to you or a therapist comes to you, rather, and and wants to learn more, Jessica, about uh, how they can be a better clinician, my hope is they don't do what I still hear from my patients is, yeah, they told me never to strengthen a muscle. They told me never to compensate. Did you ever try golfing for the first time? You look ugly trying to swing that club. You're not going to look beautiful the first three months, just like you're not going to look beautiful with a stroke for the first three months. So you got to go through those ugly stages to get a better outcome. But we still have clinicians today saying it has to be good movement, normal movement, perfect movement. Don't strengthen. Weight bear for half the session. Facilitate and do that special mobilization with your finger. So the research says you don't have to do all that. Research says we want to do task-specific training, goal-directed, purposeful, meaningful tasks. And if your hand doesn't work, then you're going to find a, a splint or a tool that's going to be, help, or e-stim, that's going to help you do those functional tasks. And will you stretch and do weight-bearing? Sure. But that's like 20% of the actual skilled service that you're going to provide. So sorry for bloviating. <laughs> that was a massively loaded up question for you. But I guess my point is, are these folks coming to you pre-biased with old school techniques, or are they mostly coming to you saying, I want to learn and I don't know anything about those old school techniques? Who are these people? It's the latter. They don't know. Uh, so it, I would say for the most part, it's, it's a little bit, oh, well, let me say this. I will say they they will um, say, I know about weight bearing and PNF. So those are the kind of words or phrases that they come in with. So uh, they, they do have that, but they don't necessarily know what weight bearing or PNF means or what it looks like or how to incorporate it. I learned something from a student. So a student came in and said, okay, this person who has hemiparesis, I want to do the motor activity log. And that is 30 items, 30 things that we're asking a patient to do, such as try to use your, or I'm sorry, it asks you in the last week, how often did you use your affected hand or arm to turn on a light switch? And then they rate themselves. This is how often I try to do it. And this is how well it worked for me. And it's a really long 30 questions. And they're answering those two questions. So it takes quite a while, in my my opinion, back then. And and I thought, gosh, I feel like this is a waste of time. But I'm going to let the student learn, try. And this was a patient who had a decent amount of function in their arm, but didn't use it. They had learned not to use it, right? My student gave this questionnaire. And the patient knew they were going to be asked again, the same questions in a week or two. And I was really pretty uncomfortable because this was taking a lot of time in the session, but I let it go for, you know, so the student could learn. If that patient did not come back the next week using his arm more, it blew my mind. I was like, John, I knew you had this in you, but where did this come from? And he looked straight at me. He said, I knew you were going to quiz me again. 
<laughs> oh, that is awesome. Okay. Accountability partner right there, huh? So we use the motor activity log. Now I use it all the time, but I use it in chunks of just ask 10 of those things. And then Henry, you said this on the previous podcast where you're, when they walk into a room, something they're going to do with that extremity. And we use that motor activity log and we'll pick 10 tasks in their day. Like it helps hold the remote control. Sorry, there's 10 to choose from. They might pick one to three this week. What are you going to use your arm to do this week? And then next week, we pick another one to three because we really want them to think how to use their arm in all the different places in their life, not just the same couple places. Absolutely. That's crazy. What, a, what an awesome story. And you're right. Uh, if, if folks didn't hear the other podcast, um, if you're a patient and you're trying to improve your arm and hand function, each room you go in, let's say there's three or four popular rooms. Put a sticky note with three things you must do every time you enter that room. Absolutely. And that's part of that repetitious uh, rewiring, Pete. Henry, I was just curious if I could share one uh, another story about one of your, your products that was a kind of eye-opening for me. Yeah. It wasn't the Sabo Flex, but it was actually the Sabo Glove. Some of our patients we see every year, they kind of come back in for a tune-up. And this particular patient had uh, left side weakness and spasticity that was just almost in my mind, it felt like a Venus flytrap. It would just be relaxed, relaxed. As soon as anything touched it, you know, and here it went, just it, it um, kind of out of nowhere, we just close up and we had to get it to relax all over again. And this was back in my, back in the day when we, when we were taught not to strengthen something that's spastic, you know, we did our 10 session tune up. She left, she came back the next, maybe in six months. And I just like, Oh, here she is. I'm not sure what else I can do with her. We've you know done everything I know to do. And she came back in and had active control over her fingers opening. So digit extension. And I was like, what in the world? Where'd that come from? Where were you getting therapy? What were you doing? And she pulled out the Sabo glove. And that is a glove that uses the rubber bands to help open your fingers. And so she put this on and it's one that she found herself and she the, she would close her hand around, she would grab you know, a fork, and then the rubber bands would help open her hand. And she said, I've been using this a lot. I had never seen it. To tell you, I, I had never seen this device. My patient came in with it, and she had better opening of her fingers. We used to call it like finger openers you know, with my patients typically, but that was a real eye-opening moment. Well, you know what's amazing about that story, and thanks for sharing it? is, you know, the Sabo started with the Sabo Flex, which is also a finger extension assist device. That's one for folks that have a little bit more spasticity in tone. And then the glove came out uh, quite a few years after to uh, make it a little bit easier to do more fine motor assist, more functional assist, but it's not spring loaded. It's more rubber band tensioner. So you have to have less than, you know, minimal tone to decrease spasticity. And it's, you started off with the power of neuroplasticity in this podcast. And that's one example right there. If we can just engage the limb, remember the main purpose for the shoulder and elbow is to interact with the hand and the environment. If your hand doesn't work, you stop using your shoulder and elbow. So if we can get the hand working again, back in the game, the whole limb wants to work. And why is that important? We're trying to avoid uh, learn on use. And we want to focus on learn use. And learn on use is when you stop using that affected side, you almost have zero chance of recovery for the arm and the hand because your brain is starting to develop cobwebs, right? It's it's like no feedback here at all. And we want to feed that brain. And the only, the only way we're going to feed that brain is if we engage that limb. So we do have uh, a couple new versions coming out and excited to, um, Jessica to mention those probably end of this year, almost like a 2.0 for the glove without the fingertips exposed, which will be even more functional 
for the kitchen and grooming. So a lot of a lot of fun things ahead, Pete, when it comes to those updates. Well, I'm really be glad to see that come along, so I have a better time applying all my hair products. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica, one of the questions I had, and you had touched on this earlier in, in both you and Henry Sierra, the same kind of passion, which is helping OTs recognize that it's not like a test or a homework assignment, but getting them to understand what's the purpose, what are they trying to accomplish, particularly as they go home, right? As, as a patient and a survivor go home and they're spending less time with you, even though they probably need to spend more time with you. And that transition, your role kind of transitions now to the caregiver, right? The caregiver is playing more of an important role. They're, da- they're seeing them daily. Are there things you train your OTs to think about? It's almost, I'll call it a care package. Like you go home with, with this, and I'm sure it depends on each patient, what they're leaving with, right? They're, they're all going home in a different state. But are there things you suggest to them that apply to everyday activities that can be integrated into their therapy? And then how do you help them measure results? Because you we know it, it takes a lot of time. So sometimes just doing the work is the win, right? Checking the box. I did my exercises. The win will come, the actual success will come weeks down the road. But are there specific activities you're teaching them that weave in everyday home movements that uh, you're seeing results with? Absolutely. So that's a great question. And something I try to educate early and often with my patients is they'll say, I don't want to work on getting dressed. I just want to work on my arm. And I also would want to work on my arm. And we can do both. And we should do both together. So I don't want to just work on, you know, someone being able to pull up their pants and their affected arm not be helping. And so this is also what I'm training their caregivers is, okay, so you pull up your pants how many times a day? I don't know, five or six maybe. So how can we incorporate that weaker arm into that task? Maybe if their hand is tight, it can wrap around a grab bar and help a little bit with balance, just for example. And so we're just reteaching what it means to, quote, work on the arm. And that means when we're at the dinner table that they're lifting their arm up and they're stabilizing or securing that plate. They're holding their plate down with that arm. And so we're teaching caregivers a couple things. One is how to cue their loved ones to use that arm because it's not going to come naturally. Their brain's going to try to take the path of least resistance and hold that plate down a different way. But we want to teach them to teach their loved ones, okay, bring your arm up. Let's bring your arm up and hold the grab bar. Let's put that washcloth in your affected hand. All of these things, that way we're using your hand hundreds of times in your natural day. We want to meet patients where they are, which is, let me lift some weights. And yes, let's lift some weights. And how do we do this in your day? And it's really that education for both the patient and the caregiver. I just don't think caregivers are armed with this, right? We, we, we forget that they play such an important role and they're leaving with no education. They don't have any training. They haven't gone to OT school. These are not instinctive movements for them. And at some point, you know, they become tired too, right? This is, maybe it's just easier for me just to give up and let them not do that. And we don't have to fight about it. Uh, I love the idea of, of being thoughtful, right? Making sure that those, those subtle movements do bring the arm back in, even though it doesn't feel like they're doing that. This is, by the way, in the hospital with her husband right away said, I made sure I sat on the affected side all the time. Just so if he wanted to engage with me or try to hold my hand or speak or do whatever, he had, I, I forced him to use his effective side. So that's great. Uh, what, when you think about the cognitive side of things, as well as the physical side, what do you find is the bigger challenge for a caregiver in picking up that role that you play when they go home? Where, where is it more challenging, do you think? The cognitive piece, 
I think when someone can't remember a conversation that they had with their loved one, and then if a patient can't remember in the morning, they talked with their wife about their day and they're going to go to therapy and they're going to come home and they're going to make dinner together. And if the patient has forgotten that by the time it's ready, time to get ready for therapy, they might become really frustrated that I didn't know we were going to therapy. And the brain doesn't like to have gaps in its memory. So a natural reaction sometimes is to blame or say you didn't tell me or to fill in that gap with a different, uh, they might say, oh, I thought we were going to, you know, get ice cream today. They're going to fill in the gap with just a different thought that they're not trying to, they're not lying, but the brain is just trying to fill in that memory gap. And that can be really hard to understand because the loved ones sometimes think, think the patient is lying. And sometimes the patient thinks the loved one isn't telling them things. So we use a memory notebook and we can write down important conversations in the day. This is also a place, Pete, you asked about goals. And I love to make a page with goal, the big goals at the end of the page. And then we do little stair steps from where they are right now to where they're going. And we can plot a few of these, of these, I'd like to be home by myself for four hours a day. Okay. Well, one of the goals to get there is going to be able to move your wheelchair to get to the restroom. And then it's going to be the step in this step. And so that's a great way for them to see where they are and see where they're going and keep them motivated. And then Henry, you've mentioned these micro goals. And I think that's so important because the goal might not move from my caregiver has to do all of my toileting to I can all of a sudden do a hundred percent. But this time I pulled my pants up a little bit. I couldn't do that before, or I kept my balance. Those are those goals that we have to comment on. We have to celebrate. We have to mark down because when we can see our progress, that keeps us motivated, that keeps us in the game because it's really hard work. Right. And I think the problem is what you're saying is, is exactly the conversation you want to have with patients. And when these neurological patients go from the acute stage to the subacute stage, they kind of get that intense, repetitious engagement of reminders of goals. But then once they leave and they're now discharged, they're so lost in the system. And, and that's, the, that's the sad part of this story is the, the post for most, for most, the post discharge from the rehab hospital doesn't mean therapy's over. It's just beginning. And then that's when they lack the most resources. Yes. The part that they need it the most is where they lack, get the, the, that's where they lack it the most at that point. And so although you have a mentored program for OTs, it's almost like you need a mentor program for caregivers. Definitely a support system. It's a whole nother platform, a whole nother academy, a whole nother education system. We've talked about it on podcasts. We talked about it at meetings. Uh, their needs, you know, caregivers need to go to school in a compassionate way and in a way that makes sense for them and their education. Pete brought it up. You're not an expert when the day that you suffer a stroke, you probably don't even know anything about stroke. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's literally going back to school. Well, I have one more question and then I'll let Pete uh, wrap it up with his, his final thoughts. We were on the No Stroke podcast and we had the guys on our podcast and I love their question. They said, what's the magic wand moment for you? So my question to you, Jessica, is let's talk magic wand moment for Jessica. Okay, you've been doing this just as long as I have. Let's break it into a couple buckets. What's the magic wand moment for you for, for the future of stroke recovery when it comes to students as they transition and graduate? Where are they? Are they falling short anywhere? What's the magic wand moment there for you if you could do things differently? That's one. The second one's going to be the therapist at these at the acute and subacute hospital. Okay, what's the magic wand moment there? Is there anything we could do better there? 
for your patients. And of course, the, the patients and caregivers right away, they've suffered this awful injury and, and, and it's a terrifying event. What can we do better there? So we're going to do students in hospitals. I'm, I'm loading you up here. <laughs> and then the therapist at the subacute acute stage, maybe there's some room for improvement. And ultimately, these patients and caregivers. So Jessica, magic wand moment. What do you got? For students, I want to see every student coming out of school and starting their career with mentorship. And that doesn't mean me. I'm happy to be there, but I'm one person. I want that just to be an understood need in healthcare, whether it's a therapist that they're working with. But here's the thing. They need to, they need to be given time and the resource of, of the people or the person. I had amazing mentors when I came out in, as a new grad, and that was just an amazing gift. But it need not be this thing only some people get. It needs to be baseline healthcare, uh, how to get into rehab, because OT school is diverse. It prepares us for entry level of a lot of different places, but how do we move beyond entry level? Well, that's working with experienced therapists and having that mentorship. So that's what I want to see as the baseline for new grads. Yep. For the next one would be therapists in the subacute acute stage. What can we do better there? Therapists in subacute and acute. They're trying so hard. I just got a message yesterday and then they're asking me, what can I do? Well, how can I, what can I do for their arm? And I actually just encourage her to get the SABO STEM one. And I want, here's what, I want them to be able to have eSTEM units just in their scrub pocket. That's just not something they have access to. So that's one. I want eSTEM units in their scrub pockets. And two, I want them to have in, in their OT toolbox, I want them to have 10 tasks already identified that they can do with anyone who's had a stroke that incorporates that right arm. So that means using that arm to push them out of bed, using that arm to reach for the glass on their table. Maybe it's a two-handed task, right? 10 tasks that go to uh, that just incorporates that affected extremity from go. I love that. And then finally, patients, caregivers, you know, it's just, uh, it's like a traffic jam and, and everyone's going in different directions and it's just hell right now. So for the, for most of the folks, I don't know if there's access to things, but what can you change about that? If you're having that much difficulty? We need a whole other podcast for this one, Henry. <laughs> so. Patients and caregivers, you know, you mentioned this before, and it was something one of my speech therapists did. She created this, this was more for a cog rehab, but in general, if, when you've gone through a stroke or brain injury, it's the, what can you expect? It's this education about what this might look like. And it's not just about the physical skills. It's also what to expect socially. Like I get overwhelmed with sensory stimulation. It's hard to go to a restaurant. It's hard to have a conversation. So one is this, what can you expect education? And the other one, the other piece that I think is really missing is helping these folks move through their grief. It's very different than if someone died and, or you, right, you, that's a known loss and it's understood in our family and friends and we come together and we, we honor that and we have time to process it. But after a stroke or brain injury, we're focused on getting better. Absolutely. That's what we want. And if we don't acknowledge or accept that there has often been loss, that emotional block can prevent us from moving forward. And it can prevent us from having awareness and dealing with, with what's our real losses in front of us. And I see so many folks when they're able to, I don't mean pity themselves, but just to, to grieve, move through those emotions, then they can move past them and fly. They can soar. Then they can say, what's my next step in my life? They can go back to finding meaning. 
in their life. And that's where, um, that's my main mission is bringing meaning to people who have had a stroke and hope. Let's go for the, go for the stars. And that means we have to move through a little bit of that loss. You're bringing up an amazing point when it comes to those Erickson stages, for example, or whatever your stages of grief are. We had a, a, a Pete, I think it was Bill from Strokecast. Um, it hasn't been, it hasn't aired yet, but therapists love to celebrate and rightfully so. We love to celebrate, celebrate those short-term goals, those micro goals. Hey, you didn't, we got a flicker of the thumb. Congratulations. And we're celebrating, we're popping the cork. And then Bill's like, big deal. I want to be where I was the day before the stroke. And that's his mind frame. So there is a little disconnect because I'm all about the micro goal because being a therapist in neuro is hard work. I mean, it's not like an orthopedic rotator cuff will say April 16th at 2.30, you'll be fine. It's like, we don't know. And so we want to celebrate small victories. And for a lot of people like Bill on the stroke cast, awesome guy, he goes, yeah, that might be fun, but all I know is who I was before the stroke. And I want that. And that's my baseline. So you bringing up that wonderful point, working through the grief with them and setting really good expectations and realizing that you can empathize with them on that. I think that softens it a little and, and lets them move forward in a healthy, positive direction with, with the recovery process. So those were awesome answers. Thank you very much, Jessica. Yeah, Jessica, very powerful. And I think the, the concept of expanding member, uh, mentorship into the caregivers is really important. As you mentioned, it can almost be a completely separate podcast or a separate initiative for sure. Right now on my phone, I have two messages from a caregiver. And I saw her when I was in the outpatient world. And I've connected with her since opening my business. And she just texts me. You know, I, I can't do this for a, every patient and caregiver. I have, just have a few patients right now. They do. They text me. And, and they, she just sent me a picture of a, a toilet seat. And she's like, is this the right one? And I, you know, I'll send her a text of another one. And she wouldn't know where to go. Otherwise, she, she's going to go to the internet and she's going to ask her the stroke support group, which is a, a good resource, but it's, it's just people trying to figure it out together. So yes, we need mentors for our caregivers. Absolutely. And the fact that it's good for the, the empathy piece you just discussed is so important. And the fact that OTs have been trained in this specific endeavor, still struggle with the amount of information in front of them, how to process it, how to apply it to real world activities means caregivers are, are swimming even in a deeper ocean. So we're big fans of yours. We're very grateful you took the time to share this. I think both caregivers, survivors, and therapists probably got a lot out of this. Just some of the practical ideas you said about you know changing the way people think about therapy into really applying it to their daily lives and for caregivers to think that way as well. So thank you so much. Very excited to have you on the program. And we'll, we're probably going to reach out and do another one because there's another hour and a half in the caregiver mentorship side that we could be digging into. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk. 